chapter 16. Proverbs 16, and we'll read verses 1 to 17 today. Proverbs 16, 1 to 17, says, The plans of the heart belong to man, but the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. All the ways of a man are clean in his own sight, but the Lord weighs the motives. Commit your works to the Lord, and your plans will be established. The Lord has made everything for its own purpose, even the wicked for the day of evil. Everyone who is proud in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Assuredly, he will not go unpunished. By loving kindness and truth, iniquity is atoned for. And by the fear of the Lord, one keeps away from evil. When a man's ways are pleasing to the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. Better is a little with the righteous than great income with injustice. The mind of a man plans his ways, but the Lord directs his steps. A divine decision is in the lips of the king. His mouth should not err in judgment. A just balance and scales belong to the Lord. All the weights of the bag are his concern. It is an abomination for kings to commit wicked acts, for a throne is established on righteousness. Righteous lips are the delight of kings, and he who speaks right is loved. The fury of a king is like messengers of death, but a wise man will appease it. In the light of a king's face is life. And his favor is like a cloud with the spring rain. How much better is it to get wisdom than gold? And to get understanding is to be chosen above silver. The highway of the upright is to depart from evil. And he who watches his way preserves his life. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we do pray that today, Lord, we would desire and gain wisdom and that it would be more precious to us than gold. Lord, understanding would be greater to us than silver. Lord, help us to see and to understand that the highway of the upright is to depart from evil and that we must, Lord, do those things that are pleasing in your sight. So, Father, we pray that today you teach us, Lord, how to discern between good and evil, that we would have our senses trained by a constant practice, Lord, of reading and meditating on your word so that we understand what is the way that is pleasing in your sight, the way of wisdom, and Lord, that we might see, Lord, those things that are foolish, Lord, those things that are evil in your sight, and that we might hate even the garment stained by the flesh. So Lord, please be with us today. Teach us from your word, and it is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. All right, uh, Proverbs chapter 16, verse 1 says, The plans of the heart belong to the Lord, but the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. There, the plans of the heart belong to the man, right? Man can think, and man can uh, plan and uh, plot and do all the things that he does in terms of this present life, right? There are plans that a man makes within his own heart, and we certainly know and believe that these things are true. We think about things, we plan on things, we have things that we would like to do, things that we would like to accomplish. This is what man is doing in this life. However, man cannot think and man cannot speak apart from God. Everything we do belongs to the Lord. The answer of the tongue is from the Lord. So even when the man is planning, and when, even when he's planning to think about something that he's going to say, some response that he's going to give, even his tongue then is still controlled by the Lord, and he cannot speak even a word without it coming from God. This is how meticulous God's sovereignty is exercised 
over mankind, over us in this present world. Even the words on our tongue, ultimately, they come from the Lord. And especially in relationship to spiritual things. How can a man who is evil in his heart speak good things spiritually? Only if God changes him, only if God enables him, empowers him, equips him to be able to speak what is good, what is right, and what is true. The tongue is controlled by the Lord. An example of this, Numbers 23. Here, this is an example, not of a righteous man, but of a wicked man. And this wicked man, his tongue was under the control of God. Numbers 23, verse 12. This being Balaam. 23.12, he says, He replied, Must I not be careful to speak what the Lord puts in my mouth? And then verse 26, But Balaam replied to Balak, Did I not tell you whatever the Lord speaks, that I must do? And then chapter 24, verse 12, Balaam said to Balak, Did I not tell your messengers whom you had sent to me, saying, Though Balak were to give me his house full of silver and gold, I could not do anything contrary to the command of the Lord, either good or bad of my own accord. What the Lord speaks, that I will speak. Here, his tongue, though he is a false prophet, and ultimately was put to death for being a false prophet, and is remembered even in the New Testament as a very ignoble man, yet even Balaam understood that he could not speak contrary to what God told him to speak. In this case, he was prophesying what is true and right, though he was hired by Balak to curse the children of Israel. God would not permit him to do so, but God controlled his tongue so that he was speaking what was true and right. Well, if God can do that with Balaam, a false prophet, then we should pray that God would do that with us, that God would exercise this sovereign rule over our tongues so that what we speak is true and good and consistent and right. And this is the way that the Lord does. Verse 2, all the ways of a man are clean in his own sight, but the Lord weighs the motive. Here, the ways of a man are clean in his own sight. Every man, even the most vile of men, entertains some notion of their own purity, of their own righteousness, that their deeds are not so evil as to gain them the disfavor of God, that they're all going to make it. Right? This is a self-righteous man. A self-righteous man thinks, he believes, that all of his ways are right and they are good. Isn't this true of the Pharisee when the Pharisee and the tax collector are there at the temple praying? That Pharisee believes that everything about him is good. Right? This was true of the Pharisees that Jesus was interacting with all of his days. They were convinced that they were righteous men. That their ways, all that they did, their very life, their deeds were pleasing in the sight of God. But what did they not consider? Yes, man judges on the outside, but where does God judge? He judges the heart. He judges the inside. This is as we read this morning from Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. Right? God is able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. God weighs the motives. And it is not merely the bare action that determines whether something is good or evil, but also where it is proceeding from. What principles, what truths, right? what intentions of the heart, what desires of the heart are giving way to that action. So, for example, we used the illustration this morning of the person giving his offering. 
And if a person is giving that offering and his intention, his motive, what is compelling him to give this offering to the Lord is his desire to establish his own righteousness, his desire to gain the praise and approval of men so that others would see him and praise him. Does that not sully that action? Doesn't that corrupt and pollute whatever it is that he's doing? So what may in and of itself, and it can be something that is good and pleasing in the sight of God, giving an offering with right motives, it ruins, it, it corrupts, it pollutes whatever comes from it, just as it is with a spring and the fountain that flows from it. If the source is corrupt and polluted, then what flows from it is corrupt and polluted. Well, God weighs the motives, and God knows the motives that are dictating whatever our actions are. And if those motives are evil motives, then even if the man is convinced that his ways are clean in the sight of the Lord, God is the one who sees, and God is the one judging according not merely to the outward action, but also to the inward motives. Whatever is there in the heart that is giving way, giving rise to what the man is doing. Verse 3. Commit your works to the Lord, and your plans will be established. Here, our works should be committed to the Lord. Whatever it is that we are doing in this present life, whether that be in our personal life, whether that be in our home life, whether that be at work, in society, in our religion, whatever it is, we should commit our ways to the Lord. Commit it to the Lord by searching the Scriptures and making sure that what we are doing as far as we can that what we are doing, the way we are living, aligns itself with the teachings of the Bible so that we are doing things consistently with the will of God. This is what it is to commit our ways to the Lord. Search the Scriptures and then also pray to God. Pray to God and commit our life to Him. We should do this every day. We should do it multiple times a day. Lord, I commit my life to You. Right? Take my life Use it for your glory. I give it all up to you. Commit our ways to the Lord. As far as possible, we are to discern and know the will of God by searching the scriptures, by seeking his will, by praying, by getting wise counsel so that we are committing our way to God. And if we do so, sincerely, our plans will be established. God will establish us in the way because if we're committing our way to the Lord, are we not committing ourselves to live a righteous life, to do what's good and pleasing in the sight of the Lord? And God will honor that. He will honor that prayer. He will honor those desires to live a life that is pleasing to Him. He will establish us in those good and wholesome ways. Verse 4, the Lord has made everything for its own purpose, even the wicked for the day of evil. Here, God makes everything for its own purpose. There is no accident, nothing that happens outside of the will and control of God. And the purpose for which everything in this world exists is for the glory of God. Everything has this ultimate goal, this ultimate purpose of bringing glory and honor to God. From the most significant things in the world, to the, uh, like the ant, something that is so minute, so small, yet that creature has been created for whose glory? For the glory and honor of God. But even wicked men, who we might say, well, they bring no glory and honor to God. Well, certainly in the way that they live, 
in their actions, in their desires, in what they're pursuing, they're not thinking about the glory and honor of God. But even a wicked person whose whole life is lived in rebellion against God, even that person has been made for a purpose. And even that person, God will fetch his glory from that wicked man. And when will he do that? He'll do it on the day of evil. Here the day of evil is not evil from God, because God can do no evil, but is when all of the evils, the judgment of the evils of that man, descend upon his own head. On the day of judgment, God will get his glory even from the wicked, because he will manifest his righteous judgment in them. He will manifest for all eternity his glorious wrath in vessels of dishonor, vessels of wrath that were prepared beforehand for this destruction, prepared by God. God has made them, and God will execute it. Revelation chapter 4. Revelation chapter 4 and verse 11. Revelation 4.11 says, Worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and because of your will they existed and were created. You created all things. God created everything. He created all men. We all come from him. Now, we know, of course, when God created man, he created man good. He created him upright, and man has become evil through no fault of God, but through whose fault? Through the fault of man, because of man's own sin. But even in that fallen state, it is not outside of the decree, the counsel, the will of God, nor outside of the purpose of God. God will get his glory even from sinful, fallen men. They were created by God, they exist for God, and they will bring glory to him. Romans chapter 9 also. Romans 9, Romans 9, 17 to 18, says, For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. Here, in terms of Pharaoh, The scriptures says to him, for this very purpose, I raised you up. For what purpose? What was the purpose for which God raised up Pharaoh to this position of prominence? The greatest king in all of the earth. So that God might show his power in that man by inflicting his judgments against him and against his nation and his false gods. So that God's glory would be known. That everyone in the world would know that the God of Israel is greater than the gods of Egypt and that he's greater than the God, the false God, who is the Pharaoh, that he has no power at all. And not only did God get this glory in time and space, right, in human history at that time, but he continues to get this glory for all eternity because what happens to Pharaoh after his death? He's going to be put into the lake of fire where he will exist eternally as an example of the wrath of God, a vessel of wrath that is going to manifest the glory of God. So he was not outside of the control of God. He was not outside of the purpose of God, but he was created by God for this very purpose. He raised him up for this very purpose that he might demonstrate his power 
in Pharaoh. Verse 5, everyone who is proud in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Assuredly, he will not go unpunished. Here, pride is an abomination to the Lord. An abomination. And when we consider what other sins are considered abominations to the Lord, right? Sins such as sodomy. Sins such as uh, transgender, not transgender, but, you know, women who dress like men, men who dress like women, this type of perversion that is taking place. The Bible pronounces that this is an abomination. Idolatry is an abomination to God, right? These are very gross, evil sins against God. But do we consider that pride is an abomination in the sight of God? And how could it not be an abomination to God seeing that pride is one of those foundational sins? Pride is a sin that gives rise to many other sins, right? It is a root of sin that springs forth many rotten, poisonous fruits. And it is an abomination to God. So how can God not punish pride? And the pride of man is seen in his rebellion against God, his refusal to submit to the will of God, his hatred of Christ and his rule and reign over him. Man's pride is seen in his unbelief that he refuses to believe what the Bible says. He forms his own opinions and thoughts in contradiction to the very word of God. This is the epitome of pride. He refuses to worship God, but then instead makes his own idols for him to worship in his own way. This all is coming from the pride of man, obstinate, stubborn pride. What about self-righteousness? Is that not rooted in pride? The idea, the concept that we, by our own righteousness, can make ourselves fitting in the sight of God when God is declared, the only way that we can be righteous is through Christ. We are making ourselves greater than Christ if we believe that we can be justified through our own righteousness, through our own righteous deeds. And whenever we also boast in whatever it is that God has given to us, are we not defaming God of his glory, taking for ourselves what belongs only to God? What do you have that you have not received? If then you have received it, why do you boast? As if you did not receive it, it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Whatever you have has been given to you as a gift from God. So why would we boast as if it came from us? And yet, is this not happening all the time? Isn't this what Nebuchadnezzar did when he looked out over Babylon, this great city that he says that he built for his own glory, his own power, right, to manifest his greatness? And then what was God's reply to him? That this is not the case at all. And God drove him into madness. He was going to be taught that God is the one who rules over the kingdoms of the earth. He gives it to whomever he wills. You did not raise yourself up to this position, Nebuchadnezzar. I gave that to you, and you're going to learn that the very hard way. This is what God will do to all of those who are stubborn and filled with pride. It is an abomination to God, and it will not go unpunished. Here, we can rest assured that if we have pride, God will oppose us. He opposes the proud, but who does he give grace to? He gives grace to the humble. So what should we do? Humble yourself before the mighty hand of God, that he may lift you up in due time. He hates pride, and he will punish the proud, but he loves humility, and he will lift them up. He will raise them up. So we must cultivate then humility in our life. Humility first toward God, and then humility toward one another. 
And how can we not be humble toward one another? Seeing that all I can judge you by is what I see on the outside. But I know what goes on in my heart. I don't know what goes on in your heart, but I do know what takes place in mine. And I can't imagine that any of you, your heart has more sin than mine. How could it be? Right? Because I can't see. Well, if we all are exercising this discipline toward ourselves, considering our own heart, not considering all the sins of others, then we will see, we will be like the Apostle Paul, confessing that he was the chief of sinners. Chief of sinners, the Apostle Paul said of himself. And this is what we must conclude about all of us when we consider our own sins and the things that reside there in our heart. This will produce humility in us it will lay us low, and then God will be the one who lifts us up. Verse 6, by loving kindness and truth, iniquity is atoned for. But by the fear of the Lord, one keeps away from evil. Loving kindness and truth. This is the basis of the atonement of sin. Now, whose loving kindness and whose truth? It has to be God's. And God's loving kindness and truth always comes to us in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. The love of God is manifested to us in the person of the Son. He gave his Son for us to be an atoning sacrifice for our sins. It is loving kindness and truth that atone for our sins. Not our own efforts, not our own works, not our own righteousness, not the works and righteousness of any other man, but only on the basis of the loving kindness of God. That is the sole fount for which the atonement of our sins comes from. Because why did God send His Son into the world that we might live through Him? He sent Him because He loved us. He loved us from before the foundation of the world, and because He has chosen to manifest His loving kindness to us, he sent his son into the world that we might live through him to be the basis for the atonement of our sins by his loving kindness and by his truth. Because God does not atone for sin contrary to the truth, but in perfect keeping with his own truthfulness. And he does it through the truth who is none other than our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our sins atoned for by loving kindness, and by truth. And then when a man has his sins atoned for, how does he live? Well, the fear of the Lord is to keep one away from evil. Since we have been reconciled to our Lord and Savior, through our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, since we have been purified, since our sins have been atoned for, then what kind of lives ought we to live in godliness and in holiness? We should hate evil. We should turn away from evil because our sins are atoned for. When we see that our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, who we love more than anyone else, when we see that the reason he suffered such great cruelty, such great sufferings there on the cross, was not because of his sins, but whose sins? It was because of my sin. My sin put him on the cross then shouldn't that make me want to hate sin? Seeing what it did to my Savior and Lord, seeing what it did to my elder brother, seeing what it did to my husband, the Lord Jesus Christ, it was my sin that put him on the cross? 
that put him there and that he had to suffer such great hardships because of me. That should make me hate sin and want to depart from evil and say, I don't want anything to do with it because I do not want to grieve my Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and his Holy Spirit that he has given to me. So when we understand the atonement, it will produce in us the fear of the Lord and that will give us a hatred for evil so that we want to do what is right. We will turn away from sin. 2 Corinthians 7 2 Corinthians 7, verse 1. says, Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all the defilement of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Since we have these promises, that God is our Father and we are His sons, that we are no longer unclean but have been atoned for through the blood of Christ, then let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh, perfecting holiness in fear of God. This is the way that we ought to live and how we ought to give ourselves to the Lord because of what he's done for us. Verse 7, when a man's ways are pleasing to the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. Here, when a man's ways are pleasing to the Lord, when he is committed to living a godly life, right, living a righteous life, God will make even his enemies be at peace with him. Now, of course, this cannot mean that all of his enemies will always be at peace with him because there's no one whose way was more pleasing to the Lord than our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And were all of his enemies at peace with him? Of course not. We know that he died. And we know as well that many of the other apostles, and there are many examples of righteous men and women throughout the pages of Scripture and throughout church history, whose ways were pleasing to the Lord. They lived a life of faith, and their enemies were not at peace with them. However, there are times when God does grant this blessing to His children, that even His enemies, even those who are spiritually at enmity with them, those who are not children of God, but who remain children of the devil, and yet they will, because of the common grace of God, and because of the goodness of God toward us, God will cause them to be at peace with us. Not true peace, not spiritual peace, not peace in and around the things of God, but a type of civil, outward, righteous peace in that way. We'll have peace with them in that they're not trying to murder us, they're not trying to throw us in jail. They want to have a friendly, good relationship with us because they see the benefit and the value of the way that we live. And there are many people who are like this, who may not be Christians, who may not go to church, they don't walk with God, but who at least have some respect, some honor for those who are religious. And when they see someone who is a real deal Christian, they at least see that and recognize it. And though they themselves don't follow it, they still respect that person and they give to them some honor and they want to live at peace with them. And this has been the case. This was the case even with my own father who is a Christian, but he worked in the oil and gas industry for many years. And many of those people can be a little rough around the edges. But there were men that he worked with who themselves were not believers, who were profane typically in their conversation, but when they were around my father, 
they would refrain from doing those things because they didn't want to offend him needlessly and they knew that he didn't do that and they didn't want to do that around him. So their behavior, their speech, became more pure when they were around him, not because they were committed to God, but because God was causing them to live at peace with my father because of the way that he conducted himself in the workplace and even there around them. And this is the way it is in many cases in the Bible. Abimelech sought peace with Isaac. Though Abimelech was not a believer, he saw the benefit and value of having a friendly relationship with Isaac and with the household of Isaac. Esau, who never was a believer, yet when Jacob returned from Haran, Esau sought terms of peace with him and did not come to kill Jacob, but whenever they were together again, he wept and was glad to see his brother, right? He gave him peace in that situation. Uh, other examples would be Nehemiah. Nehemiah with King Artaxerxes, who was not a believing king, yet he was very fond of Nehemiah, and he had him in a, this high position. He was upset whenever he saw that Nehemiah was sad in his heart, and he did things to be a benefit and a value to him. Uh, David also, when he was there uh, amongst Achish with the Philistines. Achish, who was one of the rulers of the Philistines, had a very favorable view of David and treated him kindly. He treated him better than his own people treated him. He was treating him better than Saul, though he was a Philistine and he was a pagan and an idolater and an unbeliever. 1 Samuel 29, 1 Samuel chapter 29 1 Samuel 29, verse 6 says, Then Achish called David and said to him, As the Lord lives, you have been upright, and your going out and your coming in with me in the army are pleasing in my sight. For I have not found evil in you from the day of your coming to me to this day. Nevertheless, you are not pleasing in the sight of the Lord's. Here, Achish is explaining to David why it is that the other lords of the Philistines are unwilling for David to go with them out into battle. But Achish tells him that you've been pleasing in my sight, and I've not seen anything in you to deserve this kind of treatment from the whole time that you have been with me. So he treated him in a very kind, favorable way. He gave him refuge. He had peace with him, even though David was a true believer and Achish was an idolater. We know as well that Daniel, the prophet Daniel with uh, Darius, the king, the king couldn't even sleep all night whenever Daniel was thrown into the lion's den because he had such love and affection for Daniel. So even though all of these examples, the one party is likely unbelieving. They're not on the same spiritual team as the other. They're not children of God. Yet in all of these cases, they had favorable relationships with them and they were at peace with them, and they did many things to be a benefit to them. And when we are living a peaceful life, a righteous life, seeking to live at peace with all men, again, that, it'll never be perfect. We'll never have perfect peace with all men, but we should have some manner of peace. First, in the church, and then even secondly, out in the world, God will give us peace even with our enemies, right? Right? Now, the opposite of that would be to live in 
constant conflict and turmoil so that then even our friends are at war with us. And we don't want that to be the case either. We want our enemies to be at peace. We don't want our friends to be at war with us because we're living like, um, you know, like a jerk or something like that. Okay, next, verse 8. Better is a little with righteousness than great income with injustice. Better is a little with righteousness. Better is little possessions, little money, a small estate, but with righteousness than great income with injustice. Better to have a very small bank account, to live paycheck to paycheck and be a righteous person than to have lots of money, a huge house, lots of land, lots of possessions, to do all the things that money affords you in this life, but to do so on the basis of injustice. To yourself be an unjust man who is an unrighteous man and has the wrath of God against him. This is the same as Jesus says in Matthew 16, 26. What does a profit a man if he gains the whole world and yet forfeits his soul? Right? Why is this maxim true? That a better is a little with righteousness than great income with injustice. This is true because of the day of judgment. This is true because of the life to come. This is why we must weigh everything according to the life to come. Living this life according to the life to come. If there is no life to come, then this isn't true. It would be better to have money now than to have righteousness because there would be no reward in the life to come and no punishment in the life to come. But the reason this will be manifest and will be proven true is because of the day of judgment and because eternal life and eternal death will be rewarded to men on that day. And then the poor righteous man it will be seen that it is better for him eternally than the rich man who is unjust. And we have a perfect example of this in the Gospel of Luke in the rich man and Lazarus. Right? Wasn't it better in the end for Lazarus, the poor man, than it was for the rich man? And why was it better? Why did those things turn? Because of death. Death brought about this great change in their position. We have to live by faith and not by sight. We have to believe the word of God. And if the word of God tells us it's better to have a very little and be righteous than to have great wealth and injustice, then we have to believe the word of God and what it says and live according to these things and be content with what God gives us while we're pursuing a life of righteousness. Verse 9, the mind of man plans his ways but the Lord directs his steps. Here, the mind of man plans his ways. And I take it here that he's speaking of a righteous man. The righteous man, he needs to meditate. He does need to think. He needs to give consideration concerning how he's living. We should not live careless, haphazard lives as Christians. But we should be very disciplined. We should be very thoughtful. We should be thinking and meditating and planning about how we're going to pursue righteousness, how we're going to do those things that are pleasing to God. So we ought to plan on how to live a life pleasing to God. Yet at the same time, we must understand that God is the one that must direct our steps. If we are going to make any progress in faith and righteousness, who must it come from? It has to come from the Lord. He has to grant that to us. It is Him working in us 
that will cause us to grow in our faith, to grow in righteousness. Now, again, this doesn't mean that we have no part to play. It doesn't mean that that's going to happen while we're sitting on our couches, eating potato chips, watching TV. No, we should not do that I mean, all the time, right? We should live a godly and a righteous life. We have to pursue those things. We have to plan about those things. How are we ever going to read through the Bible if we don't have a Bible reading plan or some Bible reading schedule? How will we give ourselves to daily prayer if we don't set aside time to do those things? How are we going to ever memorize any scripture if we don't have a plan and say, okay, this is what I want to do, this is what I want to accomplish, and this is how I'm going to do it. We need to plan those things, but then ultimately, God is the one that must do it, right? God must be the one who directs our steps. Verse 10, a divine decision is in the lips of the king. His mouth should not err in judgment. A divine decision is in the lips of the king. This is because the king has his position, and this would be true of all ruling authorities. During this time, the typical form of government was a kingship, a king that ruled over a city or over a territory, and he was the one who was the supreme ultimate ruler, the judge, who was passing his laws, giving his judgments uh, over that uh, area of the world. Whatever the form of government is, whether it be a kingship or whether it be, you know, a representative, uh, well, we have to start using that word lightly, but uh, some form of representative government like what we have today uh, in America, whoever is the ruling authority or the ruling authorities, right, they are there by the will of God. And a divine decision is in their lips, meaning that they are to execute their office and the authority entrusted to them by God under the rulership of God. They are not their own person. They are not their own authority. They do not have supreme authority to judge and rule among men according to their own will and according to their own counsel. But all of them have been given that authority from who? All from God, and God expects them to rule, to use their authority to bring about his will on the earth, his revealed will on the earth, meaning that they should put laws and policies in place that promote justice and righteousness according to the word of God, not according to their own whims, not according to public opinion or what is popular among men, but according to the will of God. And this is because a divine decision is with the king, and that's why he says he should not err in judgment. If he errs in judgment, who's he going to answer to? He's going to answer to the king of kings and lord of lords. Is there any king on this earth right now or at any time who can claim the title of king of kings and lord of lords? There is no mere human king who has ever had that position. There's only one who is king of kings and lord of lords. And all kings and all lords are under his authority. And if they err in judgment, then they will answer to their judge. They will answer to their king who will hold them accountable for what they have done if they are promoting injustice in the land. And this is a great hope for us today because the land is filled with injustice, with much unrighteousness, but we can rest assured that none will escape, that all men, even the great ones, even the kings, will stand 
before the judgment seat of Christ, and they will receive their reward based upon what they have done. And if they have promoted injustice in the land, then they will be held to an even, they will have an even higher culpability because not only are they accountable for their own sins, but they're like Jeroboam. And you remember what it said consistently about Jeroboam? He caused Israel to sin. He made Israel to sin, meaning he was the instigator of their sins. He was the one that created this false worship that became such a source of stumbling to the children of Israel so that they sinned over and over and over again because of what he did. Well, every time they sin, who else is guilty for that sin? Jeroboam was. So his sins stacked sin upon sin upon sin, generation after generation after generation, and this will be true of all ruling authorities. Romans 13, verses 1 to 4. Romans 13, verse 1 says, Every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. Therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God, and they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. For rulers are not a cause for fear, but for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For it is a minister of God to you for good. But if you do not, but if you do what is evil, be afraid, for it does not bear the sword for nothing. For it is a minister of God, an avenger, who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. So there, the authorities, the ruling authorities, are servants of God, ordained by God, given this position by God. Therefore, they should exercise that under the will of God. Now, who is the only king who does this perfectly? Jesus Christ, the King of kings and Lord of lords. He will exercise his rule and reign. He does that over his people now, but then he will do it for all eternity in the new heavens and new earth, and he will always do what is right. He will never err in any judgment that he ever gives, but he always does it with perfect righteousness. That is our hope. Verse 11, a just balance and scales belong to the Lord. All the weights of the bag are his concern. Here, honesty and integrity in trade and commerce, this is pleasing in the sight of God, right? If there is lies, deceptions concerning these things, if the balance and the weight are not just, but if they are unjust, God sees these things. Though the one that is being sinned against may not perceive, may not know. And people do these types of tricks, shenanigans, right? They may get away for it for many, many years. Some of them may do it their whole life and never get captured. Yet who sees everything? God sees it all. Christ sees it all. He knows if the balance is fair and just. And even if it's not exposed in this life, he will expose it on the day of judgment because God is concerned about these things. The weights of the bag are his concern because it's a matter of love of neighbor. The two great commandments, love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. Do we want someone using an unjust balance, a dishonest scale with us? If we are selling a pound of wheat, do we want to get paid for eight-tenths of a pound? Or do we want to get paid for a full pound? 
We want to get paid for what it is that we are selling. Well, if that's how we want people to treat us, then what should we do to them? We should love our neighbor as ourselves. This is self-evident. This is natural law. It's evident and plain to everyone. No one wants someone doing that to them. Well, if you don't want someone doing that to you, then why would you go and do it to someone else? You wouldn't do that. No. So why would you do it to them? And this is God's concern. This is one of the two great commandments upon which all the law and the prophets depend. So God is very concerned that we be honest and just in our dealings with others, especially in trade and commerce, when we're buying and selling, doing these things. People are tempted because of love of money to swindle, to manipulate, to rig things in their own favor against someone else, right? So that they can make an extra buck here or there. But we should just be honest, be content, be faithful, be true in the way that we conduct ourselves. Verse 12, it is an abomination for kings to commit wicked acts, for a throne is established on righteousness. Here, it is a contradiction, and it is an abomination for a king to commit wicked acts. The whole purpose of a ruling authority, according to Romans 13 that we just read, is for them to do the will of God, to be a servant of God, a minister of God, who praises good and punishes evil according to the will of God. This is what the ruling authority exists for. Well, if the king is committing acts of iniquity, if he himself is doing things that are evil and contrary to the will of God, it is a great abomination in God's sight because he is using the authority given to him by God not to do God's will, but to do the exact opposite of what God wants him to do. And if the king is behaving like this, and he is the chief magistrate, the chief judge in the whole land, then what are the people going to do? They're going to follow in his footsteps. When there are wicked rulers, then there are wicked people. And this is one of the punishments that God gives on this earth. He gives people what they desire, what they want. What is their just reward? He gives the wicked people a wicked ruler who will promote more and more wickedness so that God's judgment can come upon them. It is a great abomination for a king to do these types of things because the throne is established for righteousness. The purpose of the throne and the authority associated with that throne is to promote justice and righteousness in the land. But if that throne is being used to perpetuate wicked and evil, it is the exact opposite of why God has established it in given that person that position of authority. Verse 13. Righteous lips are the delight of kings, and he who speaks right is loved. Right, now again, a righteous king loves righteous lips. Right, a righteous king who is a good king, who wants to do what is good and right in the sight of God, and also wants to do what is good and right by the people that he rules over. He loves righteous lips and someone who speaks to him wise counsel who gives him understanding so that he can rule and govern the people in a good way. No king is the source and fount of all wisdom and knowledge, except our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. So all kings of this earth need counselors, they need advisors, they need those around them who are going to help them make wise decisions so that they can lead and rule the people in a just way. Well, when a king is a good king, 
when he's pursuing righteousness and wanting to promote that in the land, and he has wise counselors around him, he's going to love them because they help him do the very thing that he desires and wants to do. And this is good for, for them, right? He loves it. He loves a good, wise counselor. Now, this is especially true of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Not that Jesus needs counsel to make wise decisions, but as a king ruling over his people, he loves it when his people speak righteous words, when we speak what is true, when, what is right, and what is good. It is very pleasing in his sight when our mouths are given to what is pure and wholesome, what is righteous, what is true, what is just, all those things that are pleasing in his sight. Verse 14, the fury of a king is like messengers of death, but a wise man will appease it. Here, the fury of the king is like messengers of death. When the king becomes furious at someone, it is like a messenger of death. Death is going to follow. He is going to use his sword, the authority given to him, to execute those who make him furious, whether that be some foreign adversary or whether that be someone there in his own kingdom. If that person crosses him and he becomes aroused to anger, then he will use his fury to bring death to that person. A good example of this would be in the book of Esther. When Ahasuerus became furious at Haman, what happened to him? He, he gave him the messenger of death, right? He took him away and hung him on his own gallows. When he found out what he had done, when it was discovered his sins, the king became furious at him and had him put to death. Well, also, isn't it true from Psalm chapter 2? that the fury of Christ is quickly aroused, the fury of Christ will be a messenger of death on the day of judgment to his enemies, right? He will punish them according to what they have done. And then a wise man, a wise man is able to appease the fury of the king. He's able, if the king is in a rage, and he's in it for an unjust reason. A wise man is able to talk sense, to calm him down, to bring him to a place of sobriety so that he does not act there upon these evil impulses. Examples of this would be, though David was anointed king, he wasn't acting as king yet, but when he was ready to go kill Nabal and all of his household, he was in a fury, he was going to be a messenger of death, and then Abigail came to him, and she appeased him. She, called, she spoke wisdom to him, and it appeased him so that he did not act unjustly and shed innocent blood. Another example would be times when King Saul was furious at David and wanted to kill him. Jonathan often was able to appease him so that the king would not act upon these wicked impulses. Jonathan using wisdom, appealing to him that David is not your enemy. David has done great good for you. David loves you, right? Why are you treating him like this? He was able to appease the fury and wrath of the king. This is what he did. Well, this then should especially be true of those who are wise unto salvation because we know how to appease. We've been taught how to appease the fury of Christ. And how is it that a man appeases the fury of Christ? Repentance toward God 
in faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. By turning away from our sins, instead of rebelling against the Son, according to Psalm 2, we should kiss the Son, lest His wrath be aroused against us. We should submit to our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, so that instead of Him having fury toward us, He has grace and mercy, and His kindness is toward us instead. This is what those who are wise unto salvation will do. Verse 15. In the light of a king's face is life, and his favor is like a cloud with the spring rain. Here, in the light of the king's face is life. When the king has favor towards you, when his countenance shines towards you, it is life for you, right? It is for your benefit. It is for your blessing. His fury brings death, but his favor brings blessing upon you. And to have his favor is like a cloud with the spring rain, right? When the cloud opens up and drops the spring rain, it brings life, it brings vitality, it brings the blessing of the Lord there upon the land. So also to have the favor of the king. This is like the blessing of the Lord. Now, certainly this is true in this life. If we somehow have the favor of the king or of the ruler, it is a great benefit to us because they're going to do things that protect us, that promote us, to promote our welfare, that are beneficial to us in this life. But especially this is true of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To have the light of his face turn toward us for our good, is that not life? To have his favor, is that not like rain from the clouds of spring? It brings the blessing of God. Our heart, naturally, in sin, is like a barren wasteland. But when the grace of Christ, the rain, falls on that wasteland, what happens to it? It begins to teem with life. And that's what Christ does for us. He brings His blessing, His grace, His mercy into our dead, dry souls. And when He does, the result is it makes it into a garden of the Lord, an oasis of the Lord, to have the very favor to have the blessing of Jesus Christ upon our life. Verse 16. How much better it is to get wisdom than gold, and to get understanding is to be chosen above silver. Here, this is the whole theme of the book of Proverbs. Wisdom is better than anything else. And this wisdom, we are reminded, is not simply how to have a highly effective life. We're not talking about seven habits of highly effective people. We're not talking about how to manage your money to the best of your ability so that you can get ahead in this life, right? How to have relationships. This isn't self-help. We're not going to one of those seminars teaching us how to, to do those things. The wisdom of the Bible ultimately pertains to the life to come, to the life to come. Now, certainly it has implications in this present life, but it is teaching us how to be prepared for the day of judgment. How it is that we will be transferred from this life to the life to come in the wisdom that we need to be reconciled to God and to live a life pleasing to Him. So that when we stand before Christ on the day of judgment, we hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant. A wise servant who does the will of his master. This is the wisdom that is found in the word of God. And this wisdom is better than gold and silver. Because this wisdom will benefit us not only in this life, right? Physical training is of some value. 
But godliness has value for all things, holding promise for both the present life and the life to come. Physical training is of some value. It is a benefit so that we're not out of shape, so that we're able to get up in the morning and our back doesn't hurt all the time. You know, and, and it's better for us to be in, uh, do some physical training. But no matter how much physical training we do, eventually what's going to happen to every one of us? We're all going to die. Yes, we're all going to die. And no matter what, even as we get older, the body, even if we give ourselves to rigorous training, it will begin to decay and it will show those signs that that is happening. So it has some value in that it pertains to this present life. But godliness has value for the life to come and this life, for both of them. And that is why wisdom is better than gold and silver. Gold and silver can be helpful for this life. You can buy food with gold and silver. You can buy a house with gold and silver. You can buy a car with gold and silver, right? You can buy these things that you need for this life with gold and silver. But can you buy your way into heaven with gold and silver? No, you can't. But the wisdom of God can make you wise into salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. You can't take your gold and silver with you on the day of judgment. But the wisdom of God can prepare you for that day of judgment so that when you stand before Christ, you are approved by him because you have been covered by his blood and you have been given his very righteousness. And this is why wisdom is better than gold and silver because it prepares us for the life to come. And ultimately, who is the wisdom of God? It's our Lord Jesus Christ. To obtain and to possess Jesus Christ, to have him as our own possession because he is our husband. And is it not true when there is a marriage, the husband or the wife belongs to the husband, but the husband also belongs to the wife. The two become one flesh. They are one. They belong to one another. Well, we belong to Christ, but he also belongs to us. And if we are believers in him, then we have Christ as our possession. He is the pearl of great price. He is far more valuable than all the gold of the world. And to have him is better than anything else. It is better and more valuable than anything. It is his blood that is the basis for our atonement, our reconciliation with God. We are ransomed from the feudal ways that we inherited, not with gold and silver, but with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. That is why wisdom is better than gold or silver. Then verse 17. The highway of the upright is to depart from evil. He who watches his way preserves his life. The highway of the upright is to depart from evil. This is the pathway that the upright walk in. The one that departs from evil and pursues what is good and right and pleasing in the sight of God. And if you watch over your way and you walk in this highway, you are preserving your own life. Everyone who hates wisdom loves death, but he who loves wisdom, he loves life. He preserves his own life. Instead of harming himself to his own ruin and spiritual demise, he is preserving his life by pursuing and walking after the things of God. Isaiah chapter 35. We've referenced this verse a lot. I'm going to have to put this on the uh, memory list because it is a good one for the book of Proverbs. Isaiah chapter 35 in verse 8 says, 
A highway will be there, a roadway, and it will be called the highway of holiness. The unclean will not travel on it, but it will be for him who walks that way, and fools will not wander on it. There it is, a highway, a roadway, the highway of holiness. That is the path that the upright walk in. The unclean, they cannot go on that highway, but only the upright. No fools will be there. This is the way that we should walk, according to the wisdom of God found in the word of God. So let's commit ourselves in to living according to God's word, to pursuing those things that are pleasing to him. Faith in Christ, being reconciled to God through the death of his son, right? Having our sins atoned for by loving kindness and truth, but then also cultivating the fear of the Lord, which keeps us away from evil.